Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm based in London. I'm in conversation today with Dr. Fiona Sobotsky, who is a retired child and adolescent consultant psychiatrist and honorary archivist at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And I'm talking to Fiona here actually in the headquarters of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the East End of London. And we're not very far away from where a series of very grisly and celebrated murders uh, were committed back in the 19th century by someone who came to be known as Jack the Ripper. Uh, Fiona Sobotsky, who has an interest in the history of psychiatry, has been doing some research into the case of Jack the Ripper, and in particular a psychiatrist who wrote a lot to the press at the time, claiming that he could diagnose uh, Jack the Ripper, and even making an astonishing claim that he had actually identified who Jack the Ripper was. Fiona, let's start by um, saying a little bit about the Jack the Ripper murders and who Jack the Ripper was and, and what he did. We've all heard of Jack the Ripper, of course, and where the name came from is also up for debate. Um, and Stuart Forbes Winslow spoke about it himself in his memoirs and tells us that the frightful list began at Christmas 1887 and the monster laid down his knife in July 1889 after the eighth victim. There is good reason to believe that the hand of the murderer was stayed by my revelation. So that's what he had to say about it, looking back. And by his revelations, he means that he corresponded with the press, because it was a celebrated series of very grisly murders at the time, making various claims about who this person might be and the kind of person. Absolutely. He um, was in the habit of writing to the press anyway, and he also wrote to the police, and several of his remarks are about how the police refused to listen to him, although the fact is that he changed his mind quite frequently. One of the things that was interesting about it is that he actually haunted Whitechapel himself in search of clues directly and said that the women of the neighbourhood came to trust him and to tell him things, and he certainly engaged with various landlords. I do wonder for what consideration, and he doesn't mention that. Uh, right. And I think you hinted in some of your researches that he himself may have become regarded as a, as a suspect in this series of murders. This is rumoured. Of course, there's been so much written about the Jack the Ripper cases that it's a bit hard to discover where the sources came from. But I would have thought the police's response would be, have been at least of annoyance. What's really One of the things that's really fascinating about your research into this case of this psychiatrist who was kind of almost trying to get involved, really, with a police investigation um, is how modern it feels. Today, there are issues about um, um, forensic psychologists and forensic psychiatrists and their interactions with the police, and often um, these are not uh, the most good-natured uh, of interactions. It had a very modern feel to it, this conflict that seemed to be out there in, in, in Victorian London. Indeed, and some of his comments seem quite apropos um, that his final conclusions about Jack the Ripper was that he was a homicidal maniac, that's the phrase he's using, and was probably driven by religious ideas to be uh, attempting to wipe out the population of prostitutes, evil women, uh, and that he possibly felt that he was receiving his commands from God. Well, that seems all pretty modern and reasonable, in fact. So it does, yeah, as you say, sometimes it has a modern ring to it. And he was a forensic psychiatrist of 
um, quite long-standing, that's to say, of appearances in court, always defending uh, on grounds of insanity. That was his specialty, essentially. Um, so he, he wanted to get involved in this case, and he had a lot of ideas about um, who this person might be and was kind of diagnosing it. The, the diagnosis, as you say, sounds very modern. Um, but, but one of the things that's peculiar about this case in terms of the motivation and the kind of person involved was the nature of the murders. This person was never caught, um, and uh, the, the murders were, were horrible. Uh, these women were eviscerated, and that's partly why this nickname occurred of, of Jack the Ripper. Could you say a bit about the, 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 the nature of the murders themselves? Because that's part of the reason why they've kind of entered folklore. Yes, I think at the beginning, the full details of um, how the women have been attacked weren't released, and at the beginning... Um, Forbes Winslow thought that it was possibly somebody with epilepsy and that they would have no idea of what they'd done and then return to normal life. Um, as it became clearer that there was a modus operandi with the um, possibly skilled uh, evisceration, yes, his thoughts, like other people's, turned to could it have been a surgeon, could it have been a butcher? And it was a, about this time that he wrote one, another of his theories which was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing. That is to say that um, it was the work of a gentleman who normally lived in the West End and then travelled to the East End and then travelled back to his um, ordinary life. So he had a sort of series of not always consistent uh, theories. Let's go back now and talk about this man himself, this psychiatrist. He had a peculiar name. Tell us a bit about him and his background. He was... First came into life and was called uh, Littleton Stewart Winslow. And the Forbes came in later. The reason for that being was that his father was called Forbes Benignus Winslow. I'll refer to him as Benignus because it is really, really confusing. And his father um, was uh, an important psychiatrist in the early part of the 19th century and had, in fact, himself been the president of the Medico-Psychological uh, Association. So he wasn't a founder member, but he soon became very involved, though there were problems. His father was a celebrated psychiatrist and was involved in perhaps one of the most famous um, forensic psychiatry cases of all time, the case of McNaughton. Mm. McNaughton was a man who appears to have um, been psychotic and attempted to kill the Prime Minister, assassinate the Prime Minister, uh, Robert Peel, I think it was, but got his secretary instead. Uh, yes, the, the Drummond actually died from the shooting. And it was a very curious case. In fact... Um, Forbes Winslow, this is the benignant one, was indeed called on by the judge for his opinion. He hadn't actually been engaged by either the defence or the prosecution. He was sitting in the court listening. Uh, and he said that uh, Norton was certainly insane. And it's following that that the McNaughton rules were developed, although they remain pretty unclear, frankly. However, um, his son... Um, certainly wishes to remember his father by his involvement in the case. Um, obviously, it's not the core part of, of what we want to talk about, but it, it, it is important to just touch a little bit on this notion of what the McNaughton rules are, which is this notion that if someone commits a terrible crime like, like a homicide, the McNaughton rules involve could, 
is this person so unwell psychiatrically that they couldn't know or didn't know the difference between right and wrong? Something along those lines? Something along those lines, and attempts to elucidate it more to myself actually remain obscure. And how necessary it was is, is also not clear, because prior to that, uh, insanity, which was clearly recognised, had certainly been taken, at least in mitigation, um, if not a reason for the person not to be able to stand trial. But certainly it, it led to a whole, well, it led to the whole branch of forensic psychiatry, essentially. And even today, this case is so important, um, you, you hear psychiatrists and, and lawyers refer to things like McNaughton madness. Um, is this person so unwell that they would be regarded as McNaughton mad? Do they, do they fit into the McNaughton rule? So that's how important this case is. I think exactly so, that these things continue to have their importance. And I think if one looks at the case of the Yorkshire Ripper, um, the uh, discussions at the trial seem to have been very, very similar to 19th century ones, frankly. And you see this also in other cases <coughs> that um, Winslow was involved in, that the enormity of the crime was taken as a sign of guilt and you mustn't defend for reasons of insanity. That was fairly common. The other thing that really comes over from your research and is quite astonishing is to think of this case is going on and uh, this psychiatrist is in the, the, the sort of public gallery. He's come along to observe and the, the judge asks him to come and give evidence. And that tells us perhaps, I don't know whether you agree, how eminent the psychiatrist must have been that the judge should pick him out from the crowd and say, we'd like to hear your opinion. But it does seem very peculiar. He turns up as a member, as, as a member of the public, as it were, to watch the case and gets called in and gets involved and the judge calls him out. It is curious and one feels there must have been wheels within wheels about that, who knew who uh, because he seems to have become certainly eminent afterwards but as you say interesting that he should be spotted and somebody whispered in the judge's ear, I don't know yeah. Do you think that would happen today? I'm asking a slightly mischievous question. <laughs> that someone would whisper in a judge's ear, oh, there's a psychiatrist in the court. Because <laughs> in a way, actually what's fascinating about it is that it's the beginning of the fact that psychiatrists get called in a standard way now, um, rather than just loitering in the court and being called in. It's become, it's, it's a key moment in the history of psychiatry, because from that point onwards, they get involved in, and are called as, as, as expert witnesses for the defence and the prosecution. I think I'm right in saying that the experts on each side were already there. Right. And that uh, Winslow was called as an independent um, right. expert. Right, okay. okay. Uh, although this has not been arranged beforehand. But yes. yes, very extraordinary. Yes, but you still get a sense that the judge believes the psychiatric opinion is important. Uh, definitely. And, that, and that's fascinating to me today because in cases like the Yorkshire Ripper and many cases of, of gruesome murders, um, there's still a, a modern sentiment that we should ignore the psychiatrist's view, that the psychiatrist's view um, isn't important. And, it, and you get a modern flavour of it with the case of Anders Breivik, where the two sets of psychiatrists got involved with differing opinions. Yes, and I think the Victorians would have had a clear idea about Breivik, clearly a monomaniac. Where has that useful diagnosis gone, I want to know? <laughs> OK, so let's get back to um, uh, Winslow. His father is an eminent uh, psychiatrist um, and has a son who goes on to become an eminent psychiatrist as well. That's right. Actually, he was the second son and his older brother was uh, essentially intended to be the heir and 
to the asylum and the name, indeed. Um, but he apparently he was bitten by a mad dog, so the story says, and after that became a clergyman and turned away from medicine, presumably some promise in answer to prayer, I take it. And Littleton was obviously very competitive. He wanted to be the youngest person ever to qualify, to get this, do that. Um, and he achieved that and then went to his father's asylums to, ma- to manage them for his father. One gets a sense of his character as being someone who um, uh, is, is difficult to get on with in terms of his colleagues. He seems to fall out with his colleagues during his career. He does, although also that one has seen that happening with his father. Again, one doesn't quite know why, but there's some rivalry, financial problems. How does he manage to fall out with so many people? Because in many ways, he's actually a good guy in the sense that um, Molly Whittington Egan, who's written a very good book about him, uh, the subtitle is Defender of the Insane, and that was his mission in life. Uh, So here's a good guy, but his colleagues he's very irritating to. And I think, at least in part, it's that degree of self-promotion because quackery is the kind of thing that would be um, applied to behaviour like that. He um, got involved in academic psychiatry in the sense of uh, appearing to found um, some academic journals in psychiatry. So he also seems to have an interest in a kind of rigorous approach to psychiatry. Yes, it was his father who founded it, um, and uh, our man Littleton continued with it later. But yes, and he wrote two quite serious textbooks, which our very own Journal of Mental Science ignored, basically, and any of his further productions I could only find one comment on, and mostly sarcasm and criticism was uh, the lot um, accorded to the Winslow's so, in terms of getting a sense of the continuity through history, um, one of these journals goes on. Is that right to become the, the current British Journal of Psychiatry? That's right. What started off as the Asylum Journal was actually started after the Winslow Journal, and there was a row about it. Now, some commentators thought it was all sorted out, and when he became president, it was fine. Littleton obviously thought otherwise and said it led to disastrous consequences. I'm sure they were financial. Um, uh, Molly Whittington Egan seems to think it's because something to do with the editors of uh, the Journal of Mental Science, as it then became, then became involved in chancery, and they wouldn't put their expensive lunatics in uh, Winslow's asylum. That would be wonderful to look for the evidence for that. Um, But it may have been just that there wasn't enough room for the market for two lots of journals. And it's true that the Winslows had put a lot of money into their journal, and it did essentially fail. So you get a sense, which is a very modern sense, of rivalry uh, between academic journals um, and and academic approaches to psychiatry. The other flavour one gets is the sense of what's referred to as private madhouses, um, which seem to be businesses, and that... Um, uh, psychiatrists want to self-promote in order to attract um, wealthy patients or at least patients who have wealthy relatives who can pay for incarceration. Yes, I think that's right. And uh, again, another source of investigation. I wonder why those uh, two asylums failed. 
one of my guesses, I would have to look into it further, is that the, there was a move against the private madhouses because of conflicts of interest. Um, some uh, people who ran private madhouses did very well. They're the ones who tended to have mass pauper contracts in addition. Um, I think that the Sussex and Brandenburg houses did not, and I think that that's possibly why they didn't succeed in the long run, although there was a family row which, in a sense, deprived Littleton of his inheritance, uh, and the, those particular um, asylum houses closed down and moved to Catford, but not with him having anything to do with it. Um, at the end of his life, the British Medical Journal has some rather unkind comments to make um, about the psychiatrist. They did, and I wonder who wrote it, possibly another psychiatrist. <laughs> um, it, yes, it more or less implied that uh, he was less popular with his colleagues than the public, which is no doubt true. Do you think the publicity around the Jack the Ripper case and the fact that he was trying to get into the papers and did get into the papers contributed to that rather sour uh, note at the end of his life? Well, I do think so, because I also looked up references to Jack the Ripper in the Journal of Mental Science to see if there was any separate comment on the case. And there wasn't. There were one or two patients who came up with related delusions and accounts of their cases but there was absolutely no comment on the case professionally in the Journal of Mental Science. Whereas um, in New York, it's clear that uh, Littleton Stuart Forbes Winslow had become quite famous, was highly respected, and was called on to comment. And in fact, his final revelations, so-called about Jack the Ripper, appeared first in the American press, much to the annoyance, essentially, of the police in Britain who felt if it was such a wonderful tip-off, perhaps they should have heard it first. I'm wondering, and I know this is perhaps a bit of a stretch, that the police perhaps got so annoyed by this psychiatrist declaiming in the press uh, his various psychiatric and psychological theories as to what was going on, that they actually... that the, the, the waters got muddied and they ignored psychological or psychiatric advice that might have been useful. In a way, their annoyance led to them rejecting uh, this advice and actually that may have, in, in the long run, contributed to why they never caught this person because the investigation got a bit muddled and impaired as a result. I wonder what you think about that idea. Well, it makes me think of the modern situation about it, that there has been a huge amount of noise about Jack the Ripper, I don't know, 50 suspects. Um, or something, a sort of take-your-pick, isn't it? These are very muddied waters. Um, Forbes Winslow, sort of implying at the end that the man had gone to Australia, you know, other people thought he might have jumped in the river. Uh, Forbes Winslow actually publishes in his memoirs uh, facsimiles of letters from Jack the Ripper, which are quite interesting to see. These are almost certainly hoaxes, possibly from journalists themselves who wanted to um, hype the sensation for their own sales. So it was all, um, not, the, not the poor police, but certainly between the journals and um, the journalists, the newspapers, and uh, people like Stuart Forbes Winslow, um, it was a sort of collusion, essentially. 
But he does get involved, and at the risk of getting getting uh, excited by the press coverage even today, he does get involved in what seems the most exciting clue in the Jack the Ripper case, which is he claims to have found Jack the Ripper's shoes or galoshes, and he thinks that he, using a magnifying glass, can can identify blood on some of the items that the, that, that he found. Yes, indeed, including on one of the letters. Actually, he's quite careful in his memoirs to describe these more as exciting clues than really to insist, this is some time later, that they actually had a bearing um, on the case. And I think the, there's an illustration of the galoshes, um, which is one of the newspapers uh, presented this, which is really quite funny, but uh, again, I think they were provided by a landlord, and in return for what is is what I wonder. I mean, if you were in very poor circumstances in the East End of London, and it was heard that somebody was looking for clues, well, you might oblige and provide them. I think. But I think that his his search after landlords was was not entirely foolish, and it may have been that the Ripper was um, moving around and moving on. Uh, whether that muddled the police or not, I don't know. The, the psychiatrist doesn't seem to have um, had, a, had, in the end, a successful career um, because you've uncovered that he didn't really leave very much money in his, in his will. No, he only left £27, and although, in a sense, we don't know quite what that is in modern money, I do know what the other psychiatrists who ran asylums left in their wills, and it was a great deal more... So I think he did not do well. Why was that? What happened? I, I don't, I don't know. He did. Um, he remarried, and perhaps business fell off. He was had given up asylum practice. His work was in the courts, and perhaps that was fading. The Victorians do seem um, to be much more sympathetic to the idea of mental illness as a defence, and they seem to be. In more sympathetic to mentally ill people who might have committed crimes compared to the modern press or the modern view. What are your thoughts about that? I, that's partly true. One of the cases that he describes, and I also found in the covered in the Journal of Mental Science, uh, there was uh, Littleton's view, which was that the case should be defended on the grounds that there was insanity. Other psychiatrists involved disagreed and said any insanity apparently evident was possibly in response to the circumstances. That's to say, if you were found out and locked up from some horrific crime, it wouldn't be surprised if you were a bit depressed, that sort of thing. Sometimes the general public, yes, was more sympathetic. I think there was a young woman who might have had learning difficulties that the public was quite sympathetic to. Nevertheless, she had apparently... Uh, attempted to poison her sister twice and the evidence was fairly strong and that even went to Parliament and there were big rows about it. Nonetheless, in the end, she was hanged. So, looking back on this case, you have psychiatrists who disagree vigorously, they disagree in the journals, they disagree in court, you have uh, a a case which grabs the public imagination and uh, the press are all over it, the press are... Uh, printing psychiatric opinions and um, as to what might be going on, the motivation, and the police are annoyed by um, psychiatric involvement. It all has a very modern feel. 
to it. I think it does, yes, in many ways. And even, even the asylum connections do, to be perfectly frank. So um, what do you think, um, uh, what, what, what do you take away from this story? And also, what surprised you most as you were researching it? What surprised me most? Uh, partly his um, imitation and sort of repetition of what his father did, which I found quite extraordinary, actually. And that even occurs in the probate notice. That is, it's coded under Winslow, but somebody has got to them and said, no, it must say Forbes Winslow. So right at the end, and he's managed to transmit it, after his death, he wants to be identified with his father. I think that's, to me as a child psychiatrist, that's really interesting. Fiona Sabotsky, thank you very much indeed.